Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6... Evolutionary Emergency Podcast number five. Steve Schmee and the Mobster joining me from across the pond. How you doing? I'm good. Uh, it's as, as, as per usual with our emergency podcast, Steve, it's a shame that this legend of powerlifting has passed. It's always the kind of subject matter of the emergencies, but this guy deserves the title. So let's give him justice and say just how amazing he was as a powerlifter and the impact he's had on the sport. Yeah, this is basically up Mobster's alley, Louis Simmons. And Louis Simmons was a very large and strong individual. He's most famous for his powerlifting records, for being the founder of Westside Barbell, and also for his numerous powerlifting ideas. He's also come up with inventions over the years as well that other powerlifters have used to their advantage to get bigger. He's recently passed away, 74 years old. Muscle Insider reported his death on Twitter, and we're going to link that in the description and also in the article. So his record 920 total pounds in a squat, 600 pound bench press, 722 pound deadlift over the age of 50 years old. He also holds records in five different weight classes over four decades and has coached for over 40 years. Uh, his height, I've seen five foot six and I've seen five foot nine. So I think he was around five foot eight. If you look at pictures of him standing next to other people, maybe five, seven, five, eight. So, yeah, that's pretty. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Mobster? Is that pretty standard for powerlifters that who are heavyweight powerlifters to be that high or easily taller? At his best, I'm going to say he was around 240 pounds there, Steve. So, five foot eight makes him a very solid and photographs barely set from that time. A very solid looking fella at 50 years of age, uh, with especially with his tattoos and stuff. The problem you're going to have sometimes when you're doing those comparisons, Steve, is. He's standing next to fucking freaks. I mean, 380 pounds and more sometimes. Six foot, six and a half foot tall. Giants in, in the super heavy classes. Uh, it's, 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 you, you're looking at a bloke that weighs 240 or five foot eight, which is a solid big fella. And then he'll kind of look small because these guys are like him and then another person again. You know what I mean? So it's, it's difficult to get it into your mind. But trust me, 5'8 and 240 is a big motherfucker, especially for doing the stuff he's, and especially when he was kicking it at 50 years of age. Yeah, so let's get into his early life a little bit. And Mobster has a lot of cool information on this guy. Um, he was born in 1947. He says he's old, he had, he had said he's always been strong. Naturally, he gravitated to powerlifting as his first love. As a younger guy, he got into a lot of trouble. So he used weight training as his way out from the negativity. 
At 14 years old is when he started to train seriously. After turning 20, he competed in the 1968 competition. That was his first powerlifting competition. He was then drafted into the Army. So after the Army, he continued his powerlifting, and he had a dream to open up his own private powerlifting gym to share his knowledge that he had acquired over the years. He always wanted to visit the original West Side Barbell in California, never had the opportunity to do so. So he started his own in Grove City, Ohio, which is a suburb of Columbus, right in the heart of the Midwest. The gym started in his basement, then moved to his garage. And as it grew, he finally ended up needing a bigger space. So he got a 3,600 square foot private building, didn't even have signs out front. Um, I think it had like black, the windows were like blacked out. You didn't even know it was a gym. So they probably just saw big dudes, you know, coming in and out. So 40 years later, West Side is still going strong. And to get in, you've got to be strong and progress. And he demands you break records when you walk into that gym. It's not a gym where you just go in and clown around like most of these franchise gyms. I kind of get that because it is kind of annoying going to a regular gym and seeing people clowning around the whole time. So yeah, Monster, I know you got a lot to talk about it. And uh, Louie talked a lot about this when he did an interview in Muscle Insider, which we'll also go ahead and link in in the article. And you guys can check that out where he talks about what kind of gym environment is. But Mobster, you kind of had to have a little gym set up like that too yourself. Yeah, and in fact, I've, I've touched on this in previous podcasts, Steve, when I've talked about the situation that we had in uh, Gloucester back in the day, uh, where we had guys that were competing in MMA on the TV. We had guys that were competing in World's Strongest Man. We had a uh, 105-kilo uh, uh, strongman, and this was all in a warehouse. So I think the thing of it is, Steve, and this is the impact it's had. When, when the day that he passed, I posted the same as everybody else, you know, passing of a legend words to that effect on my, on my Facebook page. And so many of my strongman, strength athlete, powerlifting buddies did exactly the same. And some of those guys would have been the kind of crew that came down and trained with us. I'll give you an example. And this applies to Westside as it much as does anywhere else. And this is the reason why I think there's such a strong feeling about his passing and an affection. We had guys traveling up from Devon. That's equivalent in the, in the US to have people driving two states over to come and train at your gym. Louis himself talking on, 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 a, on a YouTube video with someone I think that trained at West, at West Side with him. And, and, and they talked about how, for example, when he had the basement gym, he'd gone to done a day's work and come home at 11 o'clock at night. And there were people waiting in his front room, one person specifically wanted to train. He said, so we trained at midnight. And I've said to you, for example, when we did the rock podcast, that the rock goes on set and then he comes back and trains at midnight. And I think this is the, the, just to give you a sense, the flavor of the attitude uh, that he had, that he inspired or, or, or sort of gathered around him in the athletes that trained with him. So whether it was in the basement gym training at midnight, whether it was in a garage gym or the, the next one afterwards, when he says it was in a very uh, ethnically diverse area, essentially a troubled ethnically diverse area. And yet they had no problems because, of course, of the setup and the attitude and these crazy guys. Uh, and, and even as you say now, the, the, the 3,600 square foot facility is essentially half a warehouse 
sending out the equipment, the T-shirts, the videos, the DVDs, everything that he, he puts out. And the other half is, you know, the other 1,900 square foot, whatever, is the gym. And, you know, we're not talking about a, a, a smoothie counter. It's, they, there's, it's nothing like that. And photographs of, of one of the uh, versions of the gym from years ago is exactly what you said. It's literally the glass. It's got black paint on the inside. And the photographs show, you know, where some of, some of that paint is thick and some of it's not. So you kind of got this weird looking effect on the glass. And you say, no one give a fuck. When we had the warehouse in a gym in Gloucester, we would have to buy a bag of gravel and a bag of cement to fix the hole in the floors that we were making with our atlas stones. I know strength athlete guys, friends of mine, where they kept their strongman equipment on the back of a truck and they would have to unload it from the truck and then run up and down where the truck was stored, do their strongman training there and then put it back. Uh, I know other places where they've stored it in a shed. So what, what we like... And what is great about Westside is what's great about some of these other places. And it's and it, 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 that vibe and that feeling. You are getting strong and you are trying to be strong and you're trying to break records and you're getting and breaking records no matter fucking what. You're training when it's outside in the rain. I've had guys in Gloucester come down and sweep the snow off the yard so we can do strongman training outside in the snow. So this is the attitude that comes across. And Westside, as much as anywhere, and Louis, of course, inspiring that, brings that to the table. There is no sort of, uh, you know, there's, there's just a million stories, and they, every single one makes you think, if I train like that, then I'll get strong. Uh, examples, Steve. I mean, I've got a ton of examples. One story, he says, um, I think it's on the documentary, Westside documentary, Westside versus the world. Guys, you can buy it as a download. I've watched it somewhere on my computer. And uh, one of the stories was that you never said that you were tired. So if, for example, you came to Westside Barbell and you said, oh, my legs are still sore from training on Monday, guess what you're going to be training that day because the guys were going to rip you a new one. Yes, guys and girls, you're going to be training legs. So you never moaned, you never bitched, you never said that something was hurting or whatever because that's what you're going to train. And it was that kind of mentality. And those stories, a million stories like that, of what came across when you when you listen to Louis talk, he's one of those people you listen to, you don't interrupt, you wait till he's finished. And it's kind of like every every time he sits down in front of the camera, you feel like you're getting a lesson. And for whatever reason, how he came across, that was okay. It wasn't, you, you didn't feel like you were being dictated to. You just felt like this guy had analysed it to within an inch of its life and that you're going to go out and do what he said. You're going to do the programme, you're going to train the way that he says and so on and so forth. And yet, Steve, I mean, there's a, a, a bunch of other stuff. For example, um, when he set up the gym, as we understand it to be today, even if it's a previous uh, uh, generation, it's he, he was importing or getting hold of uh, Russian books on weightlifting, uh, Bulgarian stuff, Eastern European stuff, some of which was translated, some of which was not. He would have the ones that were not translated. And he was seeking information from all over the world. He was seeking information for what he felt was the best weightlifters, the best strongmen, the best powerlifters in the world at that time. 
and he was the guy that was getting this stuff translated. He was the one that was bringing it in. And if you didn't buy it from him, you brought it from someone else. But those were the right kind of people. That was the right kind of attitude that allowed the information to get to the powerlifters to look for the edge, to look for the secrets. And it, and this was done when, I mean, again, the same, same thing applies to so many of my friends and buddies. There's no money. Very, very few are making any money. And, and in the early days, especially at Westside, no one was making any money. Louis not making any money. There was no training courses being sold. There's no DVDs. You're doing this as a passion. You're doing this as a way of staying out of trouble. Some, some of the guys, and I'll touch on this now, some of the guys, and Louis touches on it, so it's not, sulfic, uh, not a knock, uh, were drug users. Uh, big time out, but big time booze, booze hounds were forever going to clubs and getting into trouble. Many of them were uh, being arrested. Many of them had been to jail for various things, some some acts of violence and so on and so forth. And I think Louis himself said that he didn't care what happened outside the gym. He only cared what happened inside the gym. Results, the, the winning, the getting a record mattered. I will say, and I don't think it was something that Louis kind of touches on really, but I will say for uh, uh, again a great many of these kind of people, when you're 300 plus pounds and you have to have that kind of focus to be the best in the world, which we've addressed in other podcasts, the, what you, you need to bring something extra to the table. And Louis talks about that kind of madness sometimes. And so, for example, the things that were happening outside the gym arguably are a kind of madness. But to bring that level of intensity and focus into the gym is incredibly useful as a way of producing champions. But also, in my opinion, and this is something I say, I don't think Louis gave himself enough uh, kudos for, by bringing it to the gym, you're taking it out of the other environment. So whether that's true necessarily of people that train at Westside, it's certainly true of people I know where being able to become a world-class athlete, if it's in MMA, if it's in Palif, if it's in Strongman, and I've got buddies in all of those areas, bringing that focus, bringing that intensity, putting that stuff on the table, uh, stops it meaning stops meaning that you do the crazy shit elsewhere because you you've put it all into one thing, you put it into a positive thing. And again, that's what I mean about the influence that, that Louis had uh, on the other athletes uh, and into that kind of situation. So. I think that's one of the things you touched on this in the article, Steve. There is very much a no bullshit, uh, do what you're supposed to do, come and kick ass, train like you're supposed to, actually. Now, I've told you. It's almost like the military because Louis was in the military. It's almost like. I think it's. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a sergeant major kind of vibe that comes off of him. Like I said, whether it. I mean, the classic, for example, we was the classic. war movie, Stanley Kubrick movie, uh, where uh, the fella that ends up being the uh, trainer, the, 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 the sergeant major, the sergeant uh, trainer in the movie, um, All Metal Jacket, was a real drill sergeant in real life, and had, had been a real drill sergeant in real life. So, and what you get from that is, you, if you've ever seen these guys in, the, in, in reality, if you've, not in the movie, but in reality, that they know how to push your button. They know how to get the best out of you. So what you get with that, is like I said, first off, this guy has gone away and done all his research. He, he's later on created books and DVDs and, and, and done documentaries and, and been interviewed, as you say, by Muscle Insider and others 
uh, many, many times. Uh, but when you when you hear him talk, it's like that drill sergeant. I know how this stuff works. This is how we're going to do it. And he inspires you. I mean, one of the things you mentioned in the article, and, and I, I'm just watching, catching up on my research this morning, is his infamous or famous even breakfast. So, for example, I know that in, in, in the documentary, they talk about a morning crew and an evening crew. The morning crew meet at half past six in the morning and have breakfast. And he talks about it in one of the interviews I watched today, which essentially says, my accountant tells me that these breakfasts are costing me $1,500, $1,500 a month. Uh, and try, trying to work out how, how we can work this out for tax purposes and saying, you know, why do you take these guys for breakfast? So he gets asked this and he says, because of the group mentality, it comes across where we meet at half past six. That shows right there that we're serious because we're doing this stuff before, you know, often, as often as not before dawn. He says, and quite often in modern society, families don't get to sit down and have an evening meal together, he says, but my guy's a family. That's the kind of attitude that he wants. Well, now you could talk about it from the military and say, this is like my troop, my guys, and I'm going to feed my guys, then we're going to go to the gym, seven, eight o'clock in the morning, we've had breakfast, we talk shit, We've decided what we're going to train today. We're going to work out what the program's going to be. And then 7.30, 30, they've had breakfast. They've gone to the gym and now it's time to kick ass. So, you know, two, three hours of training in the morning before noon and getting this shit done. Then they go, they, they've either come off of work to go to train, at, you know, meet up for the food at half six or they're going to go to work afterwards or they go off and do whatever the fuck it is they do when they're not at the gym. But that time having that meal, sitting down, breaking bread, with him as the linchpin, the, the man that's holding it all together. There will be, of course, Steve, personality types. You don't get to be a 350, 380-pound super freak with a 2,200-pound-plus total without a certain personality type being prevalent. But equally, so if you want to call him, it's like the way of describing it, and I'm, I'm not necessarily sure that the guys would enjoy it, but I'll say it anyway. He's like... the, the these are guys like bulldogs, raving, foaming, raving bulldogs on a leash, but the leash is Louis. Louis is the one controlling that stuff. You know, they'll bite you, they'll tear you up, they're full of muscle, they'll do this shit, but they'll, they'll eat their dog food, so to speak. They'll, they'll get together as a gang, and then in the gym, it's no mercy. And it, it doesn't matter whether you're a 140-pound lifter or a 400-pound lifter. I've seen... One of the I've got VHS cassettes here. When I had a VHS machine, I've still got the cassettes. And there's a, a group training session in one of the older iterations of Westside, where they I think they're going from down to three plates a side on the bench and up to six plates a side on the bench. And there's five or six guys lifting, and the whole thing's like a machine, back and forth, plates on, plates off. And I've got that would be down to Louis, the ringmaster, the controller of the Raven Dogs, the 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 the, the sergeant. The drill sergeant thing that would be down to him and the guys they don't want to waste time there's no talking bullshit in between there's plates on plates off move the bar up and down the rack boom next everybody's helping everybody else and you're all doing your own thing now one guy's best bench might only be 300 pounds he might be the super light guy and another guy might be a super heavy and his best bench might be six seven hundred pounds and i'm talking about raw never mind with equips or whatever else but they're all training together now, that's difficult if you don't have that sort of drill sergeant cracking the whip, you don't have the, the, the mentality of every single person in there trying to do their best. It's a mess. If you've ever trained with someone who's 
just started out in training, Steve. That taking the weight on and off the bar is a pain in the ass. Heck, I, I get half a workout with some of the stuff that I do, just unloading my fucking weights from the machines. So that you have you've got five guys here and they're working like a bunch of race race mechanics it's it's something to see and it gives you a an indication of how you should be training when you're in the gym very little bullshit unless it's to get you to lift more uh very efficient weights on weights off they know what they're doing they're, they're using what we call weightlifting maths they know exactly how much weight they've got on the bar uh, some of the guys are doing three some of the cops guys are doing two some of the guys are wearing suits whatever, but it's like a well-oiled machine. And I think it's because you're attracting the elite, you're attracting that kind of personality. And as I say, Louis was very much the kind of person that was holding all that stuff together, controlling the psychos. And again, I'll, I'll go to Gloucester. We mentioned in the article, guys, how if you, if you, if you wasn't pu pulling your weight, as we say here in the UK, you were out. And I think on a previous podcast, certainly I've mentioned this elsewhere, I was introduced to by uh, someone from the gym saying, oh, such and such uh, plays rugby. He's 167 kilograms, 167 kilograms off the top of my head. It's like 340, 350 pounds deep. So this guy comes in and he's six, five, as I say, 167 kilos. Seems very, very keen. And I, 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 I never, even now, when I've had lots of money, when I haven't had lots of money, I says I never really took this when it comes to coaching someone. I, I charge them just enough to make things interesting, but I'm not really trying to make a living or my fortune from coaching someone. So it's fine, it's 10 pound a session. You need to turn up at such and such a time. Do you like the gym? Yeah, what do you want from the training? Off he goes. He turned up late, four times in a row. I fucked him off. I said, you can't, you're wasting my time. You can't come to the gym late for whatever reason four times in a row when i'm not fucking charging you 25 30 dollars whatever an hour for my time and expect me to give 100 percent because you can't be asked to turn up on time and yet potentially he had literally of, of all the guys that we had in our gloucester gym he had the greatest potential for sheer size and sheer strength Westside, I can see being exactly the same as that. And precisely for that, when you do get the right guys, as they did, then you produce world champions. When you've got Louis throwing your ass out, if you're not putting in the work and keep, that means that you, you're, you're getting rid of the chaff. You're only keeping the cream. Now that might, may, it might create a sort of false uh, sense of these guys, I've got something special, whether it's the drugs, or the equipment, but really it's a combination of things, but not the, the first thing that has to come to the table, and this is where Westside did, and Louis made this thing happen, is you came with the right attitude, you turned up on fucking time for that 6.30 breakfast, you sat down and, and, you, and you broke bread with the guys, then you went to the gym and you worked your motherfucking ass off, and you did exactly what you're supposed to do, you followed the fucking program, and you got world records and you got world titles, whether that was raw, whether that was equipped, whether that was drug free, whether that was on drugs, whatever. It started with that attitude. If that attitude is turning up on time, that's number one. If that's, you know, taping up a callus that you've torn in the gym, that's number two. If it's not moaning about your fucking sore back, that's number three. You could carry on. And all of the guys I know that are of a standard, whether that's national standard, whether they're county champions or whatever else, 
they all have elements of that. And so this is the reason I think why in the world of strength, and especially in the world of strongman and powerlifting, and to a lesser degree weightlifting, we've seen this recognition of his passing. Honestly, I think probably 30 or 40 of my Facebook buddies on the day that he passed away, were posting something about it. And this for people outside of the Iron Game, uh, on Facebook, for example, who the fuck is Louis Simmons? They have no idea who this guy is. They have to look him up. Who is this old fellow with tattoos on his chest? They've got no idea. But for the rest of us, he, he he's like an archbishop of strength, man. He's he's out there preaching and we're listening. And the the, the vibe, the sense of what he was able to bring to Westside and the sense of what he was able to bring to strength is what we get off on. It's one, listen, if you're a bodybuilder, Steve, Seeing Ronnie Coleman at 300 pounds and doing what Ronnie Coleman did, including powerlifting stuff, is inspiring. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to become a 300-pound Ronnie Coleman-esque bodybuilder, but it inspires you. It's the reason why we used to buy the magazines back in the day. Louis does that. Louis just an old, an old, was just an old-looking fellow with his toes. If you didn't know what he was about, You'd think he was probably some kind of like biker, Hell's Angel or something. But when you knew what he was about, then you realise this is a man that's offering something. And, and whether, as I said, whether that was DVDs, his writing, whether it was equipment like the reverse hyper, the glute ham stuff, whether it was any of those particular things, or whether it was just a sense of what it takes to become a champion, a sense of what it takes to become world-class, a sense of what it takes to be break records. With, and, and again, it's, uh, that's the thing that people need to sort of understand. And it's honestly, guys, go off and watch some of these videos, go off and watch some of these uh, documentaries and interviews and get a sense of what that's about. Even if you're a bodybuilder, even if you're into fitness, even if you're into CrossFit, whatever, go and watch how he comes across and tell me you don't get that flavor. Tell me that doesn't want to make you go to the gym. And especially when you think about, as you said right at the beginning, Steve, the stuff that he was doing when he's 50. I, I, I talk about him breaking his back and he, and, he, and he says it took him nine months. He was going downstairs into the basement on, on, on crutches and looking himself in the mirror saying, when are you going to get ready? When are you going to recover? And doing that kind of stuff. And then coming back and breaking records. Then coming back and doing the stuff at 50 plus that you mentioned. So again, it's that kind of attitude. Uh, you don't get to be a special person elite lifter, world-class, and have that happen in the gym that you're coaching people in without there being something about you that's above and beyond the normal kind of stuff. And it's very, very difficult to understand unless you've, you've been in that kind of situation, you're on the edge of it, uh, you've been around those kind of people. I, I know that you have, Steve. I know that you've been around elite athletes, whether that's in baseball or whatever. Tell me what it is in your mind that makes them special above and beyond the genetics. And I'll tell you that this is the sort of stuff that, that Louis was bringing to the table. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you've got people who, it's just, you know, they're focused. It's just like type A personality, they're 100% focused on the task at hand. And this is, you know, the way you're making it sound, like people are probably listening to this and be like, holy shit, I'm intimidated. I don't want to join this gym. But here's why people join this gym, because number one, we haven't mentioned this yet. It's free. That's the catch on his end. Yeah. So you are bad. coming into my house and I'm letting yes. you use my equipment for free. 
The catch is you're going to listen to me. And that's part of the deal. That's you're going to show up on time. You're not going to disrespect me. So a few of the things we're going to go over, which I thought were interesting. The free gym access, you get to learn from Louie. You have the team breakfast before training, as Mobster mentioned. You have cash payouts for breaking records. So you have yeah. a little, little, little incentive. There's a little carrot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bets you must train. You must train four times per week, like clockwork, at six thirty at the location. So if you don't show up, if you show up ten minutes late, you know, fifteen minutes late, as Mobster was saying, you're you're yeah. you're screwed. You must pass a seven-day tryout. So you don't just get to join. You've got to go there for seven days, and you got to show what you got. You're not just yeah. going to, like, show up when you've never touched the weight in your life. Yeah. The last one that I thought was interesting, I must train with it. others and be open to learning new training methods developed by Louis. So this is, like, the Army mentality. This is, you know, you're coming in. I'm going to show you the way I do it. And you're going to take that and use it. It's not you're coming in and doing your own fucking thing. Everyone's no, gonna, it's no. everyone's gonna follow this. And the catch is you get to train here for free. It's not like going to a franchise gym where you're paying a membership and the gym owner coming up to you and being like, okay, you're gonna do that. You're gonna do six reps of that. You're gonna do six sets of this. You're gonna do five sets of this, and then you're gonna go home. This is you're coming in for free. You're coming in my house for free. Yeah. And you're yeah. going to respect my house. You're going to respect everyone else here. We're going to do things my way or, yeah. you know, take a hike. So there is basically a give and take to, to this thing here. You know, I don't think it would work if people were paying $200 a month for membership <laughs> no. and went in there and this, this was the mentality. I don't think that would work with people. So, but he really, at the bottom line, lobster, he wants people in his, in his house to yeah. do things his way, to respect yeah, yeah. the weights, to improve and to get better. Because if you don't get better, you're shown the door too. So, yeah. you know, it comes, it's a two-way street here. You're doing your end and he's doing his end. And uh, I thought this was interesting. Yeah, it's kind of unheard of really, yeah. You said already, I'm going to give you an example, right? Whether, it, whether it's, it's pro ball in the States, soccer over here, or, or powerlifting in Westside, okay? If you come to, if you, listen, you've done your own thing, you've been away and you've trained and you got to a certain particular level at those sports, uh, and then you go, I want to be better, so I'm going to go to Westside, or I'm going to go play for this soccer team or for this pro ball team. It doesn't make any sense to me to turn up with your own ideas in front of, for example, say the pro ball coach or the soccer coach or the manager, or the captain of the team, or Westside, and say, oh, I want to train differently. Well, first off, why the fuck did you make the fucking journey to come to my gym to tell me that I'm wrong? Get the fuck out, go back to where you come, go off and do what you're going to do. That's number one. You're coming here because you want me to coach you. You're coming here because you want me to make you even fucking better than you already are. You're coming here because the shit that you do the world-class, crazy fucking pounded, 1,000-pound squats, 900-pound deadlifts, six, 700-pound bench presses. It's stuff that you can't do at those $200-a-month gyms. They don't have the equipment. They don't have the right bench. They don't have a monolift. They don't have a power rack that can take the kind of weight. They don't have dumbbells that are heavy enough. Westside's got all that shit. 
So even if you said, oh, I just want to use the equipment. No, there are other places. Save your money up, get your mummy to up your allowance and go and buy electric for yourself. Stick it in the garage. Road will sort you out. There's a ton of places that will supply you equipment. You're not doing that. You're going to Westside for the, the kind of hidden stuff. If the equipment can be brought and you can buy it from Westside and you can put it in your garage, Jim, you can put it in your shed, you can put it in your barn, you can share a space with your buddies. You're asking for something extra over and above that again. It's not the equipment because you can buy that or you can share the cost. It's something else. And it's, I don't even know necessarily it's the information, Steve, because I would argue, I mean, you've done this on podcasts before. I have actually said in terms of training, et cetera, now, whether it's downloads, whether it's videos, whether it's uh, forums like Evo, it's the information is out there already. Sometimes it's how it's explained to you and having someone like Lou explain it to you adds something. And sometimes it's just hearing it from the source. And sometimes it's that hidden thing that we kind of search for. It's the, the old kind of religious thing of climbing up a mountain to go and speak to the guru sitting in a tree. And he says that the journey up the mountain is the reason why you've done it. And you're thinking, I'm fucked, my legs are on fire, it's 10,000 steps, what the hell? But it's only later you realize that the journey was the thing, that the passage through life is the thing. So it's the kind of secret, the, the essence of it. And essence is one of those things that's incredibly difficult to describe. So whether it's a black painted windows, whether it's chalk everywhere on every surface, whether it's it's got every person in the room, the women, the, the men, the coach, everybody's got horrible calluses on their hands, whether it's he's got guys there and, and ladies that were PhDs, that were college professors, that were school teachers. And but when they're in their gym, they were monsters. And you brought that. And that's the thing that's so, so, so difficult to describe. Something else, and I want to change, I want to change the, the slant now, Steve, is yet getting your name. This is another one of those little things. And I've actually got a little chalkboard here that does the same thing, called the so-called wall of fame. And Louis points to this in pretty much every televised documentary style interview that's been done, including Westside versus the world, and points to this black painted, chalk covered. A panel up on the wall of the gym and it's got the body weights from the lightest body weights to the super super heavies and uh, the names run down the side and essentially you wanted your name on that list you wanted your name on that wall and it's pretty much everybody that's ever been to west side and got a world record or been a world champion or been the best in their class in certain federations there are a few individuals including louis whose name are in several of the categories, not just for bench squat and deadlift, but in several of the body weight categories as they've got bigger, as they've got stronger, as they've grown, or as they've reduced their weight. And one of the things that's on one of the pre-show bits of research this morning was some of the women were ass kickers and some of the women have been there the longest in terms of 10 years. Something else, Steve, and this was something that was fascinating for me. And I remember this from, from something I saw ages ago. Um, and I've actually talked about this when I've coached people. Right, so we get, as we train, sometimes we make things more complicated than we need to. And one of the things that stuck in my mind was, he's just real, real simple, squatting. So you've got the weight on your back and you're squatting down. And what you'll see is people doing different stances. They're kind of sitting back or they're, they're leaning forward 
or the knees are in this place and whatever else. And he said, why has it become complicated? It's become complicated because of the equipment. It's become complicated because you're trying to move a lot of weight from A to B. And when he gets those kind of athletes, and these quite often are world-class athletes, he says, it's like sitting down to have a shit on the toilet. You don't think about it. You don't think about sitting down on a seat on the bus. You don't think about sitting down on a seat to, to, to sit at a table and have something to eat. So why do you have to think and make a meal of it, make a mess of it, when it comes to putting a bar on your shoulder and squatting down? So he will break down their bad habits. That's one of the things that he does or did. And simplify the movement. If it's equipped, he will break the movement down uh, so that it suits the equipment that they're wearing, the, 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 the squats briefs, the deadlift suits, the bench shirts. He will train you in a way that suits that piece of equipment. But again, it's, it's, it's taken away all the bullshit. So that it's hard work and repetition and uh, using the best equipment. And again, for example, I, I, we've got at my local gym, and I'll, just to compare it, I've got a bar here that's identical to one at the gym. But I know that at least two of the other bars that they've got there above and beyond the normal gym bars are probably worth about a thousand pounds. And we're not even, that local gym's not even a powerlifting or a strongman gym. So I know places where, as you said, Steve, you're not being asked for a dollar and the bar is a thousand dollar bar. It's a $1,500 bar. And then the mono monoliths, they can be two, three thousand pounds here in this, in the UK, no. Some of the benches have got, so you're talking about sometimes a hundred thousand, a quarter of a million dollars worth of equipment in a space that's barely bigger than most people's garages, full of absolute fucking freaks and monsters and run by a drill sergeant. What's not to love? It is intimidating. I think it should be intimidating. It should be intimidating, Steve. If you've ever been in a car and, and the driver knows what he's doing and he's doing 100, 130, 140, 150 miles an hour, there's meant to be adrenaline. There's meant to be that small sense of intimidation. There's meant to be a little bit of fear. But then how do you get to be world-class? How do you get to break records? And Louis Westside and Louis himself inspired that. The athletes that are with you, training with you in the gym, inspire that. So you've got stuff like that. I mean, there's just so many uh, stories. It's, it's so, so difficult, really, to sort of try to condense all this information into, in, into tiny little things. Uh, honestly, I'll just get other bits and pieces here, Steve, if you're carrying on here for a second. Right, so one of the things that he's done, and uh, it gets mentioned in the article, guys, is what's called the conjugate club or the conjugate method. I've done this. Uh, and, a, and a bunch of my buddies have done this. So this is, if, if, he's, if he's done one thing for strength and powerlifting the strong man, it's this single thing. But he's it's done a ton of other stuff. But let's just use this as an example. And bearing in mind, he's created equipment, he's created training courses, this one single thing. And essentially, it boils down, and I'm going to oversimplify it for you powerlifters. You can go out and double check and actually read up on it and get more informed than I'm going to give you right now. So it boils down to two, two sessions. And I use this for, for bench press. So here's what I did. One session a week, let's say Monday, is speed. That's accelerating the bar off your chest. So it's, say, 60%, 70% of your one rep max. So, for example, back in the day when my best bench press was 190 kilos, my Monday session, my speed session, one with a bit more volume to it, would be 140 kilos. And it might be sets of three, might be sets of eight. And I'm trying to move that bar down to my chest 
compression, 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 and then boom, explosion off my chest. The next session, which will be Thursday, hopefully recovered, is power. And so it's a lot heavier weight. So if my best bench as it was at the time was 190 kilos, then I'm trying to put very, very close to that. For me, that was a much higher percentage than most. But for most athletes, it'd be 80%. With myself, it was 90 or 95%. So it might be 170 kilos, might be 175 kilos. And I'm doing maximal or what you call submaximal singles in that particular day in my case. Now, the reps, et cetera, and the sets might vary, but that's kind of what it is. It's a speed day, an explosive day, a volume day versus a much lower volume. Uh, the bar doesn't go as quick, but you're trying to accelerate it. That's why you did the Monday session. And you're doing this with all the exercises. You're doing it with deadlifts, you're doing it with squats, and you're doing it with bench press. And of course, I'll give an example. We did this with Strongman Against Steve, what's called accessories. And one of the things I did like about Louis looking at some of his coaching again was uh, not everybody's doing the same accessory lifts. Not everybody's working the same movements for weakness. But what he has done is he's gone and looked at your style of lifting and he's, he's get to the point, Steve, where as a coach, you can just look at someone and instantly see where the weak point is and where the strong, strong point is. What needs to be worked, what needs to be accessorized, what needs to be trained and what you can leave the fuck alone. So uh, he could do that in that, that session that you mentioned, you go in there for a week, you prove that you're the real deal. And he's looking at you squat, he's looking at your bench, he's looking at you deadly, right? You need to do this exercise for your back. It might be completely different from everybody else in the gym, but it's what you need to do. He can do it in a minute. He can literally look you up and down and say, right, that's what it, that's it. This is what you need to do. This is what you need to work. You're wearing this piece of equipment, your suit, you're, you're lifting this particular way. You want to add hundred pounds to your or deadlift. Uh, this is what you're going to do. And there will be a day of those four days that you've already mentioned, which is probably spent on nothing more than, than working on the accessory stuff. Nothing. The other days, as I said, would be technique and speed and volume and putting in the work. Specific, what they call specificity. You're literally just doing the fucking movement and putting in the work. If I want to get better on bench, I bench. You know, but I then need to work on my rotator cuff. So that would be an accessory for me. So that's stuff like that. And that's just one thing there. The fact that he's gone out and together with others, created two or three pieces of equipment, including the reverse hyper, for example, uh, had a part to play in uh, glute ham with uh, him and others using chains, him and others using resistance bands, uh, working with equipment changes as they came into the sport, work accommodating uh, athletes when it came to changes and rules and regulations and what they could do and that kind of stuff. It doesn't sound very technical when it's pick up the weight, put the weight down again, but it does when you're trying to get that last edge, that oomph, that little percentage that produces a world record over the second and a third and a fourth place. And so that, that and attitude is everything. One of the things he mentioned on a, on a video this morning, Steve, was they, if they were lifting away from West Side, say halfway across the States, they would, as, as often as not, they would leave them, the cups, the trophies, in the hotel room where they'd stayed. They didn't bring them back to West Side. He was only interested in the title and he was only interested in the record. It wasn't necessary. Once they got the trophy, which they'd worked so hard for, they wasn't interested in the trophy. It's kind of weird and sounds a bit fucked up, but it again, it encompasses the kind of attitude that these guys were bringing. Uh, what else we got here? So let's have a look. Yeah, finish up. I want to try. Yeah. 
Yeah, let's touch on nutrition and then get into the drugs, Steve. Yeah. So um, the nutrition aspect is very interesting. You know, you guys have to remember this isn't bodybuilding. This isn't physique. You're not going to, you're going to see basically different ways to diet that are going to work. So really, Louis says the guys eat whatever the heck they want to eat but they do aim for a gram per pound of body weight. So if you weigh 200 pounds, you're going to aim for 200 grams of protein a day. Pretty simple stuff. So four different West side, former current veterans who've worked out there gave four different answers. So one guy said he eats 8,000 calories a day. Another says he eats 30% of his diet in fat. Another said he follows a high cholesterol diet because he believed cholesterol equals testosterone. And uh, the last guy says he eats maybe 600 calories a day at the most. So the point is, if you go to that gym and you ask people what they're eating, everyone's going to eat something different. So Louis, he doesn't dictate that. He doesn't say, oh, yeah, you've got to eat this much protein. You got to eat this much fat. You got to eat this much carbs. You got to eat you know, this, you gotta eat that. You can't eat this. You can't eat that. He doesn't care about that. His main focus is the training aspect and his training method. And one of the reasons you see a four day, you know, this four day split kind of routine, I think mobster and tell me if I'm wrong is I believe that he separates them into four groups. You have the equipment in the gym, so you're not going to have everybody do one of these splits and just use up and have the rest of the equipment just sitting there idle. I think when no, you no, walk in there, everybody is doing something and he probably groups them based on, you know, the groupings are based on how strong the guys are. And he, ha- he has them work together on these split routines. And then the thing with, with powerlifting is you take more time in between sets. So while one guy is doing it, the other guy is getting the weights ready, ready to put the weights on. But since you guys are kind of the same strength level, you don't have to waste time, you know, picking up and putting on weights that varies so much. So I think that type of gym, you got four different groups working the four different splits, and then they rotate day by day. So you're taking advantage of the gym equipment. What do you think? So I think I think you're right in that in 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 the splitting the groups up. But what I will say is that, for example, if you think about it, it's kind of come down to squat one day, deadlift one day, bench press one day, and then the other day is going to be uh, assistance, of course. Now here's the thing again, right? And you can break this down even more. And again, using myself as an example, if I was specialising as I did back in the day with bench, I'm benching twice a week. So here's the thing, and I've mentioned this on other podcasts. I don't, you don't even need to get stuck on the four-day, seven-day, whatever, because if it takes you that long to, re- it takes you that long to recover. So here's what's probably happening. Uh, and again, it comes down to you have to remember, people, we're talking about an elite group here. We're not talking about average Joes. We're not even talking about competitive Joes. We're talking about a group of male and female, super, super elite, world-class athletes. So world-class includes response to drugs world-class includes response to recovery and world-class of course includes response to the work you're putting in a gym so i think steve it could be something simple like monday squat tuesday bench day off wednesday and and you know thursday deadlifts and then friday accessory work it could be something as simple as that and as i said when i was referring to the bench press uh, vhs cassette i've got here 
and you've got DVDs, and you can see this online now, of course, via YouTube. You've got athletes that are doing three plates, and as I said, athletes that were doing six plates, and they're all working together because they're all bringing the same attitude and the same energy. But as I also mentioned, and you just touched on it, because of the difference between the athletes and because powerlifters tend to take time, if you've got five guys benching in the way that I've described, it's going to be three, four, five, six minutes between lifts of each athlete. And that's if, for example, you're all doing sets of three. And even again, on, on the VHS cassette that I'm referring to, um, you had guys that were doing twos, guys that were doing singles and guys that were doing four and five reps. But it worked. It was like a well-old machine. It was almost, like you said, the military thing with the drill sergeant in, in charge. So I, I agree with the four days, but I mean, the gun might come down to as simple as, you know, three days of smashing the granny out shit and, sorry, four days of working really, really hard, smashing the granny, and, and three days of recovering. So it, it's, it's, it, can, it can be like that. I think sometimes we, and you and I do it, and I refer to it when I've, we've talked about steroids, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes we feel like uh, the, in order to become special, become elite, become world-class or whatever, you need to be doing something special above and beyond what everybody else is doing. But the reality is it's going to be a combination of genetics, combination of focus or attitude, as we like to call it, and a combination of, of to put it crudely, fucking hard work and that's it now what west side is bringing as i said to do and, and analytical in their approach especially louis in pointing out where you're weak it might be for example you're amazing picking a weight off the floor but you're terrible at pushing your hips through when it comes to deadlifts and just locking out at the top long enough for the referee to give you the the judge to give you the down signal that might be where you struggle. I'll give you an example again, Steve. So this is something that applied to me. I'm not the only person. I know David Orm was involved. I know at least one other person was involved. Andy Bolton is approaching his 1,000-pound deadlift back in the day, and I think he got up somewhere around the 960-pound mark. And there are videos at that time where one of his hands, because he's using a mixed grip, one hand over, one hand under, on the deadlift, one of the hands is starting to open up, and the bar looks like it's going to fall out of his hand on one side, and crashed onto the floor, so he puts it down. And Andy, being a world-class powerlifter, realizes he needs to work on his grip. He'd never really had to train it, picking up heavy weights, doing the stuff that he did in the gym was always enough. But now, because he wants to get the thousand-pound world record, he wants to break that barrier and get to where he becomes the legend because he was the first man to do a thousand in competition. He needs to work on his grip. So I got a message. David Horn got a message. I think Nick McKinnis, one of the guys I've mentioned on previous podcasts, got measured. And at least one other person, he ended up doing an article on his training, also was involved. And we all went away. I think even a buddy of mine, Paul Savage, uh, contacted him. And we were we both asked or offered up information to assist him in working his grip so that that hand stayed locked to the bar. And it could go from the 960, 980 through the 1,000 to the 1,008 pound, which is where he broke the record. So... That's the kind of attitude and mentality these guys are bringing. And, you know, that's it's not necessarily the four-day thing. I don't think it really makes much of a difference. It's probably just something that's worked for most of them. And again, like I said, you know, with the guys working and whatever else. Food-wise, I think you're 100% on, on point. Again, this is because you're dealing with an elite group of people. You, uh, you're not going there for nutritional advice. Westside's not known for nutritional advice. And you're genetically blessed anyway. You're, you are a strong motherfucker with great tendon and connective tension, great leverage, et cetera, et cetera. And again, specifically because of the body weight thing, with the rare exception, 
was super, super lightweights and the middleweights. Most of these athletes, they're not worried about six packs. They're not worried about veins popping. You'll sometimes see that, but it's not something they're necessarily training for. And I also think, Steve, there's an argument which goes, they know what works. And I think we mentioned it in a, a recent podcast we've done where I said, for example, Usain Bolt eating chicken nuggets before his uh, world record sprints of 100 metres, purely simply because he's not going to use hardly any fat, hardly any carbohydrate, less than a tablespoon of energy running 100 metres. But he does need to be power packed with muscle. He does need to have that explosive energy that's required to go under 10 seconds when you're running 100 metres. And so, you know, it's not something you would recommend for everybody else, but it's what worked for him. And it worked for him because he was breaking world records. So we could sit down and say, is a chicken nugget the best thing for someone to eat? And the answer is no. But is it the best thing for Usain Bolt to eat before he goes out and breaks world records? Yes, because it fucking does. So these guys are getting to that. And again, I don't think Louis ever made any claims to, to be a, a specific specialist in nutrition. And who knows what these guys are having for breakfast when they're sitting down and breaking bread like we talked about. But if you bring the right attitude and you're coachable and you put the work in, then and, and you, I think there's almost an expectation of being able to do that, then that's what you're bringing and that's what Westside is offering you. Let's get into the steroids, Steve, because I think there's it, it, things that Louis, I want you to talk about what Louis says, and then I'm going to talk about what the, the attitude is regards to steroids and the use of equipment and the way that uh, powerlifters think and, and stress athletes to a less, lesser degree. Yeah, but then we'll talk about his death as well. So yeah. Louis is, isn't shy about giving his views on steroid use. He says, and this is his quote, it is retarded and ridiculous, unquote, that a grandfather can walk into an anti-aging clinic and get steroids, but a ball, play, ball player can't. He says, if you are in performance, you should take performance enhancing drugs. So he's got other views of steroid use, which are interesting. And let me go through them. He says that 65% of males in America already have male pot pattern baldness, but people want to blame steroids. He says it's okay to send kids to elite sports schools and programs, but steroids are bad. And he says, you know, isn't that cheating as well? He says that roid rage doesn't happen. Now, again, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with what he's saying, guys. Mobster and I, you know, we don't agree or disagree. We're not saying we agree. This is, this is what he said. So I could say a road rage is real. I, 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 you know, so I've experienced I think it. It's, I think it's what you said earlier on, Steve. It's yeah. the type A personalities. And like I said at the beginning of the podcast, some of these guys were fighting in bars. Some of these guys were getting into trouble. Some of these guys have been to prison. Some of these guys were using recreational drugs. Trust me. The steroids are the least. It's the personality type. You know, if you're taking trend, but you already get into fights in a bar, then you're just going to be worse on trend. So it's, and, and again, it's like you said earlier on, the type A personality is a driven, focused, borderline criminal, uh, and I say that in the nicest possible way, behavior. I'll give you a good example, Steve. We've got as many people... Um, working the doors and doing what we call bouncing over here and doing security and all those kind of roles that require you sometimes to be a big, strong motherfucker. Not all the time. Not every person that does that does that now, and especially not in these days, but certainly back in the old days. Uh, and, and including people that would have otherwise been getting into trouble and going to jail before 
the licensing and rules and regulations that we have for those jobs now, again, back in the day. And these same people are, have been world champions in strongman, world champions, world record breakers in powerlifting. And again, I think it's something, there's a, a thing there for him. And I, I mentioned this already, what you did outside the gym didn't matter. What you did in the gym or on the platform mattered. So he didn't care if you were a crazy, mixed up, drug taking, uh, going to prison every five fucking minutes, nutcase, so long as you could bench 700 pounds, so long as you could deadlift 800 pounds, so long as you could squat 900 pounds. And that's kind of what, how it was approached. So for him, throwing a bit of testosterone at that person, they were already troubled. They were already ass kickers. They were already doing stupid fucked up shit outside the gym. But when you were taking steroids, that wasn't to make you worse outside the gym. It was to make you better in the gym. It was to make you better on the platform. It was to make you a world record taker, breaker, champion. So for him, it, the void rage, these guys are already fighting in bars and getting thrown out and getting arrested and drinking two crates of beer and all that kind of stuff. Steroids didn't make them do that. They were already fucking doing it. So for him, the roid rage thing is like, how, how is this possible? This guy was already crazy already. He wasn't made crazy because he took some D-ball. So yeah, I can see where he's coming yeah. from. Now, well, yeah, 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 you know, may, yeah, you're, yeah, you're right. You're right for sure on yeah. that. It's and that's his that's his yeah. experience. Whether there's guys out there in the states or here in the UK, who, I mean, in fact, you and I both know people like this. I think sometimes if your testosterone levels are especially low, then you notice the difference. I think also there's an argument for this, Steve, and, it, and it's it's psychosomatic. Some fellas and some women, but mostly fellas, because we're already testosterone driven to begin with. Their attitude to training changes when they're on cycle. And that might be as simple as I spent a thousand dollars on my cycle. I'm going to go balls out. I'm going to be super serious. I'm going to be super hardcore. And I'm going to do this, that, and the other. And then they kind of imagine that this comes with increased aggression. What it should come with is increased focus in the gym. If you're working really, really, really hard, balls out in the gym, I don't know how you're supposed to have the energy to go away and do this other stupid fucked up shit. Yes, your recovery gets better, but so does your strength, so does your muscles. So for me, I, I don't know about you, Steve, and I suspect you probably are the same. I'm, all, I'm kind of more mellow on than I am off. And that might come down to my response to certain particular steroids, but I'm kind of more at ease with myself. I, I'm, I'm, almost, I'm also self-aware. I'm thinking, if I'm on and a situation happens where uh, I might otherwise have been aggressive, I kind of hold myself back. I'm holding myself back because I'm a big, strong motherfucker anyway. So if I do hit you, it might hurt a lot. It's certainly going to hurt me, and it's going to hurt you. And I might, if I'm on steroids, do I go crazy on your ass? No. All of my most crazy, stupid fights as a young man, as an older man or whatever else, they've never been on cycle. So for me, I can I kind of agree in that particular thing. And again, I've been around world-class strength athletes I can't think of a single situation <clears throat> off the top of my head, excuse me, where any of my buddies, 300 plus, nearly 400 pounds in strongman that I've trained with or, or, or who know who the fuck I am in terms of what I've done or whatever else, 
I can't think of a single time that we've had to pull them apart from fighting. I can't think of a single time yeah. when we've had to throw them out. I think if that were to happen in the in this gym, I think he he oh, yeah. per- permanently gone. You're you're out. So yeah, exactly. You're out. Yeah. If you're fighting, so really, these are out. just big big teddy bears like you, mobster. They're big teddy bears. They just in there. They in get the all gym. their they get all their shit out of <laughs> all that all that baby batter is out of yeah. their system lifting that yes. heavy ass weight. So when I was lifting heavy and I was taking Tran, I was like a baby. Just because I took it all out in, in the gym. So yeah, I think it, you know, when I was younger, when I first started using it, those androgens really made a difference. Yes. Like with my yes. with my aggression. But as I got older, I became just like a baby for sure. So that's yeah, that's how it is. So let us know, guys. Let us know in the comments how if you felt the same way. For me, the first couple cycles, those androgens hit me. I had a little rage going on. And then the more I did it, the more I got older. And now I'm like a baby, just like mobster. So, but let us know guys in the comments. So let me go over the rest of his, um, yes, his anabolic steroid view. So he says they've been out since 1939 and are still on the market while prescription drugs have horrible side effects. He says that we already have testosterone in our bodies. Why not add more, right? He says steroids improve ligaments and tendons. They don't weaken them. Eh, you know, some of these are up, are, up for, are up for debate for sure. He says, yeah, why that, do football players get injected with corticosteroids and painkillers, but not allowed to take anabolic steroids? True. I mean, he's got a point on that. He says half of the baseball players are alcoholics. Uh, you know, that's, that's yeah. I mean, he could be, number. yeah. And plenty of pro athletes are on heroin and Coke, but they aren't allowed steroids. I think it's a little, a little hyperbolic to say something like that. Um, because I don't think, I don't think they would last long. If they're not on and Coke, they wouldn't last long. Um, uh, he has openly admitted that he's used steroids for decades and you can watch the full interview. We'll link that into the article as well on his views of steroid use. So he's very nonchalant about it, very open about it. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that he has, he has that viewpoint. So I don't think that, um, you know, steroids are anything shy in his gym. I think everybody who's no, in this gym is, no, no, is no. probably I'm using them. Yep. So let's get into, um, you, you know, let's get into his death a little bit, and then we'll get into his uh, steroid cycle that Mobster and I both worked on. Uh, Mobster gave, you know, gave a lot of input to it. So there isn't a lot of information on his death. Um, I actually looked nope. into it uh, recently, last night. I looked into it a week ago. Didn't see anything new that came up. So his family's keeping things private, which is understandable. At the end of the day, he had been experiencing kidney issues in recent months, and he had been in and out of the hospital. So the doctors had insisted he stay in the hospital, but he checked himself out one final time, and he passed away in the comfort of his home on March 24, 2022. So he passed away at 74 years old. So he didn't die like young or anything he did die no. younger than the typical american male dies life expectancy by a, you know by a handful of years but you know it's not like he died really young now did steroids affect his his life i think his i think that no more than his him being overweight affected it you know you're five foot eight 240 pounds that's overweight <laughs> It doesn't matter if it's if it's muscle or fat. That's overweight, and that's going to put a lot of pressure I'll, on your organs. I'll jump into this, Steve. Yeah, so, on the previous yeah. podcast, we've talked about uh, – I, I used the analogy that I'd, I'd seen and read elsewhere about the engine being revved on a Ferrari when it's sitting there on your drive and not being driven. 
and you're revving, 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 and not only do you rev it, you keep it revved. So there's an argument for it. I mean, 74 years of age is free scoring 10, right? Let's not muck around. We're not talking about a young man here. But I think that there's, a, there's also a thing going right. So some part of what we've done in the gym is supposed to make us healthy and it's supposed to help us with, with a long life. So we would want for Louis what we want for ourselves. So that's 80, 85, 90 years of age and still kicking ass, still being in charge, still doing what needs to be done in the gym. That would be really, really cool. But I suspect... The combination of foot to the floor training, the revving of the engine, and the uh, if uh, I'll skim over it a little bit, the nonchalant attitude to steroids. I I think that's a slight exaggeration, insofar that he was probably on TRT when he wasn't lifting. He was probably on TRT as an older man in his seventies before he passed away, and so there's an argument perhaps for that adding a little bit of wear and tear. But again, ultimately, 74 years of age, it's kind of reasonable. It's certainly free scoring 10. We know that people's lives are getting extended. We know that medical care helps you a little bit. So we could have seen or we could have hoped for Louis another five or 10 years. But I think also, Steve, arguably, when we look at photographs of Louis in the last few years compared to, say, 10 or 15 years ago, the ageing process has caught up. And I've touched on this before, and it's nothing specific to Louis. I think we all have periods of time where, for example, we know boys and girls that are amazing looking in their teens. And then you see them at school and you think, oh, my God, that's the king and queen right there. And then five and ten years down the road, she's, she's a housefrau. He looks like he's worn out already. And they both look 40 plus when they're really still in their 30s. And yet you get someone else from school who doesn't really bloom until they get to 30, doesn't really get to, in terms of a man to their, to their strengths until they're 40 or 50 years of age. I think with Louis, we could argue, for example, that his best in terms of his life and his abilities as a lifter, et cetera, et cetera, would have been in his 50s. And so he was he was doing stuff at 30, he was doing stuff at 40, he was doing stuff at 50. And uh, again, this is something else as well, just to touch on that stuff. He's had a pretty fucking amazing life, Steve. Pretty fucking amazing. In terms of being a world-class lifter in multiple body weights across 30 or 40 years, post-fucking injury, so there's wear and tear right there with that broken back, uh, not being afraid to use steroids, so arguably potentially pushing the envelope a little bit there, and, and still being an arse kicker up until probably 10 years ago, and still being a great coach, and still being an inspiration. So, yeah, I, I, you, you could argue a little bit about the stories maybe shortening his life. You could argue the same about him getting underneath a barn, you know, pushing your blood pressure through the roof when you're trying to come up with a 920-pound fucking squat. That kind of stuff, that, that for the man in the street, especially someone who's not a lifter, that stuff will fuck you up. And the fact that he made it to 74, which, as I say, free, still free scoring 10, as uh, is, is a great example of his genetics. So, you know, old, old, an old man dying is no great fucking surprise. Uh, it's, for us, it's not that. I think it's almost a kind of disappointment that Louis wasn't invincible, that he wasn't going to live forever. So maybe that's what it is. We wanted to see this old man stick around and carry on kicking ass and carry on inspiring us for a longer time. So there's probably a bit of that there, Steve. You want that. You want the Tom Brady to live to 100. You want 
Louis to live to 100. That's the kind of vibe that we've, we're getting at here. Otherwise, 74 years of age is a fine and a time, especially when you've put your foot to the floor, when you've been pushing yourself crazy, crazy hard to world-class and world-record levels. Let's get into the kind of cycle we think someone like Louis would have done to break world records in powerlift. And I'll, I'll start these off, Steve, and then I'll throw a couple in at the end after you. So, 10 IUs a day of growth. Quite simply, guys, for the same reason that bodybuilders use it, same reason as strength athletes, especially here. So it's less about the anti-aging and more about recovery. And touching on the Louis' comment about tendons, we're talking about connective tissue health here. So recovery from injury, recovery from those world-class super heavyweights in the gym, keeping your tendons strong, keeping the connective tissue strong, and certainly recovering from injury. A thousand milligrams a week of sustenance. I mean, the Sustan Decker stuff here, which is also a thousand milligrams, I've touched on this before. It's one of my favorite cycles. When I was 280 pounds, I got the 300 on this and I was out there kicking ass and taking names. This has been when, when I was from, from 280 to 300 on Sustan Decker. That's when I got one, my 180, one, 190 kilo bench, my best. Nothing world class, but good for me. Uh, so that's stuff like that. And, and the, the last one before I let Steve jump in and I'll come in again at the end is of course trend and again it's not a wonder drug guys it's not nirvana from heaven it's not nectar of the gods but 600 milligrams a week uh, of trend is the one that those of you that use trend seem to see the difference it's to, to use that car analogy again it's when you go turbo you're already pushing hard you're already training hard your nutrition's already on point and then you add a little bit of training and you see that difference you need to do the things first before you add the training, because the train on its own ain't gonna do shit. But once you add it in, you notice the fucking difference. And one, one of the things I will say here, Steve, before I let you jump in, notice that the amounts here is total, Steve, around three grams a week, maybe a little bit more, versus the kind of numbers that we've been talking about for elite bodybuilders. So when we do elite bodybuilder cycles, it's four grams and five grams. When we talked about Boston Lloyd, not an elite bodybuilder is five grams and change. When we talk about the death cycles, it's six, seven, eight, nine grams. This is not crazy, crazy, crazy amounts. And again, there's a couple of reasons for that. For example, in Louis's case, never more than 240 pounds in competition. It's not looking to be 300 pounds. 300 pounds would have probably fucked him up. 300 pounds would have shortened his leverage. And 300 pounds and the cycle required to get him to 300 pounds and the training required probably would have shortened his life. So I'll let you jump in with the last couple of drugs here, Stephen, and I'll, I'll throw in two more that I, I mentioned to you in the pre-show. All right, I'll save those two for you. So as Mobster mentioned, HGH, Sustanin, Deca, Trend, you got Anadrol as an oral. You've got uh, other orals such as Halo, Testin, Superdrol. Those are really good for strength. Um, yes. I've, used, I've used Superdrol. The difference between 20 and 30 milligrams a day of Superdrol is like crazy. That's how powerful Superdrol is. It's almost like 30 milligrams was too much for me to tolerate. And 20 milligrams was like strong as hell. So it was kind of like, you know, it, if you're taking 20 milligrams a day, it's tolerable. And if you jump to 30 milligrams a day, it's not tolerable. But they're still giving you a lot of benefits, even at 20 milligrams. So very toxic steroid these are the types of steroids that you would see them using you know these are steroids that that cause 
increased strength. I mean, you use trend by itself. It's going to add yeah. a ton of strength, but stacking it with an oral such as Anadrol or Halo or Superdrol, and then stacking it with DECA and then stacking it with Sustanin and stacking it with ACH. I mean, that's just giving you crazy strength. So these are the steroids that they're messing around with. And I get the feeling, you know, in that type of gym, I mean, not using trend is going to put you behind your peer who, who you've been going up against. And if he goes on trend, you don't, he's going to, he's going to jump ahead of you and string. So I, I would say that, um, you know, trend would almost be a mandatory thing to use, but uh, I mean, it's um, you can get, you can get away without it. If you're, if you're using these other compounds, I think DECA is a very important one. It's, um, you know, there's been some people that say, Hey, it helps me with my joints. I've used it three times. I can say, yeah, it helped with the joints, but once I came off of it, the j- same problems just came back. So it's kind of like a band-aid. It's not going to help you long-term or anything, but it can help in the short term. So I think these are some of the things they mess around with. So mobster, you know, what else did they use? And then um, sorry, I, yeah. I agree with you on the orals, especially in the toxicity there, Steve. I think what we're talking about here, guys, and I'm not sitting down with powerlifters to discuss their specific cycles here. But what we're talking about is an, an A's at the end of a training cycle. So let's not confuse the drug cycle with a training cycle. You, if, for example, let's say that someone's lifting once a year, you could spend the whole of that year easing up at the first part of the year, building up in the second part of the year, getting ready to peak in the third part of the year, and then the fourth part of the year is when you compete. Now, for that, you're talking about 52 weeks. So you, if you're going to be using gear all year round, it's going to be relatively low amounts right at the beginning. TRC levels. It's only going to be moderately increasing uh, during that. And in fact, in reality, I suspect what we're really talking about here, guys, is an enormous amount of time off and then quite harsh with regards to the halo, for example, and the superdrol and the anadrol. Highly toxic, especially in the amounts that are sometimes taken for short periods of time to get you to that peak level. And again, that's better than 99% of the other athletes out there that train in gyms or wherever else. You are trying to become a world record breaker. Now, of course, the issues with toxicity is potentially the harm. And we occasionally hear stories that's been doing bodybuilding, less so in powerlifting, it has to be said, but they are out there. You can find them where guys have run them for long periods of time and done themselves damage. So it's not recommended. In reality, what should happen is these toxic drugs are run at toxic levels, but for short periods of time, very, very, very close to and including the day of the competition. Two that I mentioned to Steve in the pre-show was a drug like check drops, which I've used myself. Essentially, check drops, and don't ask me to pronounce the, the other name of it, Miralabone, I believe, is a, a drug that was given the dogs to make them sterile. For some particular reason, we found out that this made you crazy aggressive if you was in that mindset on the day of a competition. It encouraged adrenaline and it's in the amounts of micrograms i've only a couple of times seen stupid cycles where people were taking this to abusive levels and again even i think in the case of both halo and check drops for example the longest period of time i saw cycle recommendations for was four weeks steve and in the case of check drops two weeks but in reality most athletes were only using check drops on the day of the competition a single drop with 200 milli micrograms, I apologize, underneath the tongue, so sublingual, 
absorbed through the mucous membrane on the day of the competition. It has about an eight-hour half-life, and you are ready to kick ass. If you're gonna, if you're, and you're putting yourself in that situation, of course. So whether that be as a boxer or MMA fighter or whatever else, where it's also been used, or as a powerlifter, when you want the 100% of effort, super focus, super aggression, momentarily, then Trek Drop's going to do that. There's a video out there somewhere of me screaming like a moron, and they're finishing you and seeing everybody in the room for about 20 seconds when I've brought the British record and I particularly lift. I think I'm marching up and down the gym in a mood to kick ass, but it lasts, honestly, as you said, for the most part, I'm a teddy bear. It lasted about 20 seconds. I've got the record. I'm super hyper. Then I calm the fuck down and I go off and have something to eat. So it's cool. The other drug, and funny enough, this was more of a 70s thing than a recent thing. And I touched on it. One of those legendary stories, Steve, that I mentioned to you. I won't mention the name of a, a, a multiple winning world's strongest man and powerlifter, but you could probably work out who it is. So the legend has it that there was drugs that were given to troops, especially from Vietnam, et cetera, at the time. And I think one was morphine in a kind of sort of plunger thing that you could carry around in the first aid kit, and the other one was adrenaline. And so, for example, morphine would be used by someone who's been shot, been wounded, the grenade blown up or whatever else, and you need to get the helicopter to come in and take them away. And anybody could use this thing. You didn't need to be a doctor. You didn't have to have to insert it into a vein or whatever else. You just grabbed this, this, this apparatus, you ripped the end off, and you, you, you rammed it onto their leg. And the action of ramming it onto their leg would push the plunger and give them a certain dose of morphine so they could be stretched off somewhere. The other one was adrenaline. So the legend has it that a particular powerlifter, and again, you have to remember, guys, from this time, this is when we saw powerlifters having nosebleeds. And again, 900 pound, 1,000 pound on your back, it's going to push your blood pressure through the roof. Straining to come up when you weigh 300 plus pounds with a 1,000 pound on your back, it's not going to do your blood pressure any favors. But in then when you are taking these drugs and adrenaline, this is when we used to see the powerlifters, you still do this for now, now and again, but especially back in the day, headbutting the bar, being kind of pushed out onto the platform with their bench suit on and, and looking like they're going to fight everybody on the platform. So the story goes that this particular athlete hadn't really tried this particular drug, wanted to go out and break a record. I think it was for the squat. And they go off into a cubicle in the men's toilets and they get one of these, uh, these military uh, plungers and rams the adrenaline into the fire underneath the squat suit. They immediately have what felt like a panic attack because the adrenaline is kicked in and adrenaline is flight or fright. You're either going to fight someone, saber-toothed tiger, or you're going to run away. But this, this 300-pound powerlifter is in a toilet cubicle so he gets massive symptoms of anxiety and essentially starts to freak out and starts pounding on the panels between the toilet cubicles to the point where they started to break. And his buddies have had to run in, open up the cubicle, drag him out, slap him around the face and push him towards a platform where he goes out and does, I believe, a 900 pound squat. So guys, and this applies, so not just powerlifters, of course, MMA guys, fighters have done this stuff like, you're looking for an edge. You're looking for a peak performance on the day. In the case of a fight, it might be a certain number of rounds, but it's never going to be that long, Steve. What is it? Half an hour? Hour, if, it was, if it's a 12-round fight, including the rest periods, what, 45 minutes, something like that. For powerlifting, it's a day, and you might have spent all year getting ready, but really the actual time lifting on a platform is, comes to minutes. 
minutes for the squat, minutes for the bench, minutes for the deadlift. So you're looking for an amazing level of performance for a very, very short period of time. So you run these toxic drugs for short periods of time. You create a toxic environment, which might make you edgy, might make you anxious. But because you're an athlete, you know how to focus. You know how to bring their energy to the single lift that you're about to perform. And you're using these drugs in that particular way. Far more, I would argue, sometimes with a bodybuilder because a bodybuilder sees what they see with the diet. A bodybuilder sees their results in the mirror. And so it's a, it feels like a much longer thing, whereas a strength athlete, and specifically a powerlifter here, in the case of Louis or whoever, is looking for a peak performance. And it's, mu it's way more measurable than the visual. It's quite simple. It's how many damn kilograms or pounds is on that bar and did I win? Did I do enough to beat the other guy? It's as simple as that. There's no argument about, uh, uh, you know, politics. There's no argument about, you know, did the tan look good or whatever. It's just a single thing. Now, there are going to be arguments, as there always is in sports, and powerlifting is no different to the judging. Did he squat deep enough? Did he lock out on the deadlift? Did he, you know, did he bar touch him chest on, and so on? There's not going to be a million arguments, as there has been for years, about the suits and equipment. So I will finish on that particular point, Steve, because one of the things that come from Westside, and Louis, again, touches on this in his interviews, is if the rules allowed it, they did it. And one of the videos they've interviewed, one of the athletes, he said, I've never lift, lifted as a assisted, and what he meant by that was a drug-using powerlifter, I've never lifted in a drug-tested competition. So the competitions I entered, weren't tested. Therefore, they knew that the athletes, myself included, were going to be using steroids. Now, if the same competition allows you to use a suit, if the same competition allows you to do incredibly strong uh, knee wraps, if the same powerlifting competition allows you to squat in a particular way, then that's what they did. And the West Side guys had various comments, positive and negative, made against them. And I think one of the things that was said was, we did what the rules allowed us to do. We either got the lift passed or we didn't. It was quite a simplistic approach. So if they're allowed to wear a triple ply shirt that they can barely pull their arms down, it takes three people, sometimes four people to get on. And then on the day they produce with that shirt and the effort they put in the gym and 900 pound bench press, and that's the world record then that's it. If the cycle allowed them to do that, if the shirt allowed them to do it, if the training allowed them to do it, their own not being scared of 900 pounds above their fucking face allows them to do that, then that's what they did. And so that attitude, that at all costs, and, and, and this includes, as I said to you, the risk of injury is incredibly high when you get into world record stuff. We've talked about this on other podcasts it's incredibly high at that level. It doesn't just apply to powerlifting, but any elite sport where, you know, skiing down a mountain, swimming with, on one breath, 300 feet down underneath the ocean, all of these things have risk factors involved. All of them, you, you could be injured. All of those, if, if, if there are videos, guys, you can see videos of 700 pounds being dropped on, come out of the, the, the lifter's hands and 700 pound bar, the loaded bar, but was landed on, on a powerlifter's chest. So there's risk factors, and that comes with 
these steroids as much as the other things. So these guys, again, type A personalities, are going to push the extremes of Halo and Anadrol and check drops and adrenaline and the suits and the wraps. And they're going to trust me to get underneath. Steve, I'm sure you've seen a couple of these videos. There are videos online and you can go and see these competitions in person if you want. And you can see guys with 1,200 pounds on the bar for bench press. We know that there are guys out there, Eddie Hall, 500 kilo deadlift. That's 1,100 pounds deadlift and nearly killing himself to pick this weight up, requiring oxygen, having an ECG after, requiring 30 to 40 minutes to recover on a stretcher behind stage. That's all out there, guys. It's nothing secret. It's nothing hidden. To get underneath 1,200, I think, I'm trying to think this, close to 1,300 pounds for a suited, equipped, monolith squat just standing up with that weight compare it to most guys in the gym it's about four times what a semi-decent lifter in most people's gyms can do 300 pounds for reps this guy's got 550 kilograms i think and i think actually the record might be higher than that steve 500 kilograms is 1100 so it's 1210 pounds and then it might be doing more than that now in their squat and to go down and come up with that takes a certain attitude. So if you your attitude to the lift is a certain particular way, then your attitude to drugs and the training and everything else that's required is on another level of what most of us can understand. I've had to put myself, and I think you've done this a couple of times, Steve, I've had to put myself mentally in a particular place. And I've worked with world-class athletes and we all had something different and I've more often than not been able to find out what it is. You had to have something about you that requires you to go in this particular place. So your attitude to drugs, it's not going to be, it's almost not that big of a deal, Steve. It really isn't. Because if you're going to get under 1,200 pounds on the squat or seven, 800 pounds above your face on the bench press, you're not going to be worried about the potential side effects for anadrol. Maybe you should be, but you're not. So if you're vaguely sensible, if the person that's coaching you is vaguely sensible, then, then the sensible thing to do is to run these harsh, toxic drugs for short periods of time, but only to produce the result that you desire. And the attitude is kind of everything. Like I say, guys, if as a good example, and I think powerlifters have even done this back in the day. Let's say that your best bench press is 300 pounds. Go and set up the power rack so the safety is at the right height. You're not going to get crushed. You're not going to get hurt. You're not going to tear a peck or wet of rust. These bars are nowhere near your chest. They're almost arm's length and load the bar to 500 pounds and just try and push the weight off the pins. Now, if you want, put some elbow stuff on, put a nice tight T-shirt on, maybe go out and invest in one of those bench shirts. Now load it to 600 pounds. It's double what you can do. You're not doing anything like a full range movement and it feels horrendous. It feels like you're pushing up the back of a car. Now we know that these suits and equipment that the guys wear for powerlifting Add a lot, but you're still getting underneath when you're doing a bench press. And this is where some of the records are now in the super heavies 1,200 motherfucking pounds. Certainly 1,150 pounds seems to ring a bell for me. And they're getting underneath that bar and they're lowering that damn bar to their chest and they're hoping that the bar touches and they're hoping that the referee's good. And then they're trying to get the damn thing off their chest and lock their arms out. And with all the wraps and suits and everything else that they wear, it's still a shift in attitude 
that most of us can't understand. So the shift in attitude applies to the drug cycles. Now, it doesn't make any sense to me to be running this, running this kind of level of stuff all year round. So definitely the harsher, more toxic drugs will be for short periods of time. I'm just trying to give you guys a kind of insight into the mentality of elite powerlifters and strongmen, but especially into the mentality that most of the athletes, if not all of the athletes, and Louis himself had and still have at Westside Barber. You have to think kind of outside the box. You, you're taking away all the bullshit out of your training and just realising that the, to become a world-class athlete requires a world-class level of work, requires you to get those meals. They don't have to be tuna and rice, but they do have to be there aiding your recovery. The recovery that you're doing outside the gym which is probably much bigger part now than it ever was before, Steve, with ice baths, chirotherapy, massage, deep tissue massage especially. I know, for example, Andy Bolton, where he chains in Leeds, Raoul's gym in Leeds, they've got this huge thing. It looks like it's come off a monster conveyor belt. I think it weighs 45 pounds, and it's this polished steel bar, and they roll it up in, like a rolling pin up and down each other's backs. The level of recovery that I know other strength athletes are doing with cupping and deep tissue massage, that stuff would make you cry. It make me cry. It brings tears to my eyes, and it's done because you're trying to break world records. If you're trying to keep the tissues separated and working, you're trying to break down knots and scar tissue, and so the the recovery is as aggressive as the work in the gym. And this is the thing, guys. Westside, I think more than anywhere else, arguably, brought all of those factors together in one place, and they did that as a result of Louis bringing that drill sergeant mentality, bringing that attitude, putting that stuff there all in one place. If something come up new, they got to hear about it. If they, something come up new, Louis had researched it and say, right, guys, today we're going to try this because this is what this person's just done and we're going to do it. And if it works, we're going to add five, 10 kilos to our totals. We're going to add five, 10 kilos to our bench. And that that was their attitude, Steve. It was a, It's so difficult to define it in as few words as we do with the hour that we have for this podcast in such a way as to give people a real flavor of the mentality of the kind of athletes that were training at Westside and of the, the man, the legend that Louis Simmons is and what he brought to that group of people. When you're already kind of borderline psycho, when you're already trying to be a world-class athlete and then you go there for the extra added 10%, whatever it was that Louis bring into it. And of course, he himself as an example, like you said, Steve, that's not muck about guys, 50 years of age, squatting 920 motherfucking pounds. That's uh, the, the, the bodybuilder videos, King Williams and others that we see squatting 700, a uh, lean and relatively muscular, 280, 300 pounds. And Louis Simmons is doing that stuff at 50, at 240 pounds. You've got to try and get your heads around those kind of numbers and the attitude that's required, the, the, what was brought to the table and the indefinable stuff that's brought to the table that was there in spades when every other person in the room, in the group, as Steve said, has the same as you do. If they didn't, they got the fuck out of the gym. They either got the fuck out of the gym because it was too much or they were thrown out of the gym or they were asked not to return. So everybody there from the lightest to the biggest 
is bringing their A game and bringing that attitude. And Louis was no different from the rest of that group. Arguably, Steve, the reason why he was squatting 920 pounds at 50 is not just to prove to himself, but to show the group that I can do this shit too, even as a middle-aged 240-pound lifter. Demand respect, be owed respect, and be given respect because you're doing that kind of stuff. So, guys, I, I will finish here. Steve, if you want to jump in for a second, and then I'll finish off as usual. Yeah, um, I, I just want to – we only have a minute left. So why don't you take us into the disclaimer? But why don't you give us a little bit of your opinion on what happens now uh, going forward to, to their, their group? I think the next guy in line is from Ireland. I think his name is something Barry, Tom Barry or something. So I think that's I think interesting. Thing that was just, it just occurred to me as I was talking in those last minute or so was to myself, what happens now? Who, who takes over the group? Is there someone there in the group now that can keep Westside Barber? Well, don't you think because Louis had been in and out of the hospital so much that they were already, you know, they already used to him not having him around as well. I mean, maybe, maybe. You know. I think that's the kind of guys, those guys are going to be driven. And, and one could even argue that just because there's a building we're in Columbus now doesn't mean that it can't work elsewhere because it can. I think it's just one of those things that this is, a, this is there's a, an argument, perhaps, and I hope it's wrong that Louis was the glue that held all that stuff together. And so I would I would wait to see, and I would hope that I was wrong, that he wasn't, and that the other guy, someone else could take up the slack because there's bound to be, but as you said, if, if he's been in a hospital recently, maybe not. I don't know. I, I think the thing of it is, there's more of, in my mind, maybe perhaps there's less of, uh, of my thinking on Westside Bubble itself and the uh, gym in Columbus, and more his impact overall, as I said right at the beginning, on the world of strength and specifically strength, powerlifting, strongman and weightlifting, because as I said, I've, 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 we've had a number of deaths in bodybuilding and athletes this last year, two years, for one reason or another specifically, we know what that's about, uh, far above, for above the average. And I've seen plenty of comments for one reason or another about those particular things. But when I, uh, the outpouring of comments, positive comments, the impact that it had on so many of my strength buddies were surprisingly large. And so his impact of his death in that particular way was very, very telling. It doesn't mean that weightlifting a strong man disappears. It doesn't, that's not going to happen. It's just the impact that he's had in a positive way on where we've got to until today. There will be other people, there will be other mentors, there will be other coaches, but Louis deserved this podcast and he deserves a special mention and he deserves, as I said at the beginning, also, he deserves that title of uh, strength legend. Right, guys, as always, please note, we are not doctors. And the opinions we give on this podcast are hours and hours alone. It's our view. It's based on our experience and views on the topic. Our podcasts are for informational purposes and entertainment only. There's freedom of speech and a First Amendment applies.